When leading thousands on the job, how do you help your own child whose diagnosis is a realistic death sentence? What happens when you land in the icy river and are frozen like the ice man cometh? And how do you come to terms with the stuff that really matters most in any particular crisis? You just might be surprised. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for, and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello, everybody. This is Nancy May from Doing It Best at Elder Care Success. My guest here today is Mark Bertolini, the co-chief executive, actually newly appointed co-chief executive officer of Bridgewater Associates, which is the world's largest and most successful hedge fund. Before that, Mark was also the former chairman and CEO of Aetna, which successfully merged with CVS Health Corporation. And he'd also been a leader at Cigna, NYL Health. NYL Care Health Plans, that's a mouthful, as uh, well as a, a Select Care Inc. And he's obviously been, as you would imagine, just from that alone, a leader in the healthcare industry. He has a very unique perspective on what's going on. But I also want to mention that Mark is an author of a book, which I read a while back called Mission Driven Leadership. And this is actually partially what drew me to this conversation and to ask Mark to be here with us today is some of his thought process about how being in that lead role of corporations really can change your life, especially as a caregiver. And that's more important because so many of us are dealing not only with kids and even adult children who may need help, but our parents as they age. So we're, so we're sort of stuck in this, I'll call it the, you know, the ping pong ball racket of what goes on in our life. And Mark, I just want to say thank you for being here because you've been very candid with your own experience in this process, both in caring for a son who was almost left for dead at one point, right? In your own health and just recently the passing of your mom. So why don't we just start with how you first dealt with the head-on experience of being a caregiver first for your son, correct? Yes, yes. And then later with your own personal, physical challenges, and then with your mom at, at a later point in time. But being a caregiver for a son or for a child is different than being a caregiver for a parent. Definitely. Um, thanks, Nancy, for asking me on the, on the show. It's great to be with you. I, um, yeah, I would say being a caregiver gives you a really interesting perspective on the patency and validity of the system, they call it, you know, the, the healthcare system, which, you know, we all know that have dwelled in it for too long, that it's not a system at all. Ergo, the need for a caregiver, somebody to be an advocate for a child, for yourself or for a parent or for a friend. And my big aha moment was, oh my God, none of this is, oh my God, none of this is connected. It's all disambiguated and we need to figure a way I needed to figure a way how to navigate it and uh, stitch it together. What I think is really interesting is that here you are, you've been in the thick of the healthcare system. As you said, it's not really a system. It's a business right? for years, yet you were caught between a rock and a hard place yourself. And mm -hmm. what do you do and how do you 
you can't manage it. I guess you can, you can try, but the term management, I think is just the wrong word altogether. It's how do you push through and, and help that person on the other end survive, really? Well, it's in a parent situation, it's different, but it can be a life or death situation for anybody else. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, you're right, you can't manage it all. It's too big to manage. So something that's aided me throughout my business career is, you know, in many situations I've walked into, it's been a turnaround situation or a fix of some sort or a build. And when you walk into that situation, there are going to be things that are going to happen that you just can't manage. But what you should manage are those things that matter. So when I was... So you're talking about like almost, I don't, I don't want to call them structural, but that's the best way I can talk about key things that are a little bit more understandable and tangible to wrap your hands and your head around and figure out what can you do to move forward as opposed to the doctors are emotionally engaged in this. Too. Well, I'll use my son as an example. We knew that my son was going to get graft-versus-host disease. We actually created a bone marrow transplant to give him graft-versus-host disease to kill his cancer, which had never been cured, and it worked. But when we did that, we knew nutrition was going to be incredibly important. His mental health was going to be incredibly important. He was... He was going to be immunosuppressed, so keeping the lines off the floor from the IV pole. And he was whole, how old at this point? He was 16. Oh, God. And so, you know, and an, and an athlete and mm-hmm. have the whole world in front of him. And all of a sudden, boom, the wall shuts and says, you've got a terminal cancer. And so what we did, my wife and I, we, we spent time understanding the disease, understood the process as much as we could got smarter every day by meeting with the medical team every morning. But it was always a sense of what are the five things I really need to focus on today? Got it. So you're able to compartmentalize everything, which quite frankly, I did the same thing with my dad towards the end of his life when the, you know, what hit the fan and we had to make a decision. Do we move forward to help him? Or my, you know, my father is, as I've shared in other shows, was the kind of person who wanted to fight to the end. Right. So I knew what my job was, Mm -hmm. but not everybody knows what to do that, except when you're a parent of a child, your job is to fight like hell to make sure that they're going to survive, period, and putting them in the It's an unnatural order thing. Yeah. It's an unnatural order thing. It shouldn't happen. Yeah. Right? So your your first reaction is disbelief. This doesn't happen. Shock. Why is this happening now? And then you got to, you know, focus and... I'm the kind of person, and that's the reason I've been successful through my business career, is that when there's a crisis, I get really focused. What are the things that matter? What do I spend my time and pay my attention? What do I need to learn? Um, and and you know, as I've said to people, never waste a good crisis. It's a moment to really change, you know, change the way you think. And and so that whole experience for me. You can't manage it all, but boy, you can manage the stuff that matters. So what changed for you personally beyond the focus to make sure your son survived and became healthy again, which he is, I know. And yeah, got a family. He's 35, got a family. He's been 19 years without, or 36 now, I'm sorry. You know, it's 20 years since he's had his, he was diagnosed and he's got two children and teaching math in a high school in Dover, New Hampshire. So he's living a great life. That's a good story. We all, all hope to have. But it's changed your life as well, just even how you think about right. the functioning of what you did, especially at, at Aetna. So can you explain a little bit about that? Because the biggest challenge that I've heard from caregivers in the corporate world, now I had my own business, so 
I could tell a client, look at, I can talk to you. I just can't talk to you during this hour. Right. And quite frankly, everybody was very, very supportive as long as I kept the line of communication open. But that doesn't always work in the corporate world. Well, it can. You have to work at it. Some companies boss. just say it's it's your problem. You know, it's well, no, not I, our problem. But, I, but I, had a bo- I had a boss at one time that said to me, when you've said it so many times, you can throw up. You're only halfway there. And so, again, <laughs> focus on message. What are the priorities? Keep hammering the issues. And you get everybody aligned around you. And that's what I kept doing with the team, uh, the medical team. What are we doing today? I used to get up in the middle of the night to do look over the shoulder of the residents when they were doing renal dosing yeah. to make sure they're doing the math right, right? And just sort of this sort of, you know, what are the really important things? Because his kidneys were compromised by the immunosuppression. And, and, the check and balances, yeah. Right, and so you had to sort of find these systems. And so I think the process, and, and of course I had the luxury. I quit my job and moved into his hospital room with him. Yep. So I had the luxury to do that. Not everybody does. They have families to support. My wife and I alternated spending time with him to make sure he was covered. We were always in the room. Um, There's always one of us in the room to talk to the medical team to learn more for us so we could advocate for him. And he, at some point, because the GVH was so bad, the graft versus disease was so bad that he couldn't eat anymore, mm. that at, at one point he was not participating in his care anymore. And you know, doctors would come in and ask him questions. I used to say to them, don't ask him those questions unless I'm involved in the conversation. He couldn't emotionally get it. Well, first of all, he's a teenager. Mentally, he, was, he, he had albumin of 0.4. Four is normal. I mean, his brain wasn't working because he wasn't getting nutrition. Got it. Got it. And so, you know, and he was 16. I remember one time they told me, you know, we were getting ready to do total body radiation before his transplant. And the doctor walks in and I'm not in the room and says to him, you know, tells him he's going to be sterile as a result of the total body radiation. What he heard is that that wasn't going to work anymore. Oh. And he freaked out. And I walked in the room and I said, I told you not to talk to him about these kinds of things unless I'm in the room. I said, Eric, it's not that it's not going to work anymore. It's just that you are going to be infertile. You won't be able to have children. And I said to the doctor, I said, I think it would be really important that we put something away in a sperm bank for him so that when he gets older, yep. the doctor says, sir, your son's dying. Like, like why even think about the future? The chances right? of him making Right. And I said, you know what? Yeah. How about a little hope? The doc- doctors quite frequently, I would say, become almost immune to the emotional response, right? They have to, to save themselves. They have to be. But it doesn't help those of us right. who are caring for anybody at the time to say, I could use a few four-letter words, but I'm not going to <laughs> and say like, you, you know, blankly blank, blank, this is not your family member. You're just on to the next number and your success rate depends upon survival. So, you know, get with the program, doc, right? Well, I had a doctor one time, we were... We're in the room and he's asking me to sign a DNR while my son's sitting in the How bed. callous is that? That's just, that's beyond versus just stepping right. down the hall, not even outside the room, but down the hall to have that conversation. And I said to him, I said, I'm in the room all the time. I will make the call. When it's necessary. I worked, you know, I worked in emergency rooms and I saw a lot of people die. I'll make the call. So I'll be here or my wife will be here. And he said to me, you know, I'm tired of having to come to you for decisions why should I have to explain everything to you? The doctor said that. I, yeah, to me. <laughs> okay. <And> so, <laughs> Time to change doctors. So I, I said, could I see you out in the hall, please? 
And I went out in the hall and I grabbed him by the back of his lab coat and I pushed his head up against the. I was about to say, did you put your hands around that his neck? It was hanging on the wall. <laughs> and I said, this is the patient Bill writes. My son is 16 years old. I am his parent. I get to know everything he should know as a patient. So get your head right. So one of the things. Which caused security to show up. <laughs> and all sorts of things, but. I had a younger sister when I was seven years old, um, who was about three and a half and had childhood leukemia. And my mom dealt with this. My father was not able to emotionally deal with, he was running a business. So it was a little different and it was a different time. But I remember my mother telling me many times over in the course of my life that when my sister was on on her last breaths, that she panicked and called the doctor and said, help me, what do I do? And the doctor said, you know, I know Mrs. May, she's dying. That's it. What do you want me to do? She's consider her dead. And like you had that experience, things haven't changed mm-hmm. a lot. I understand the ability of a doctor to separate and put those walls together so they themselves don't collapse. Right. But there's got to be a better way to have those conversations with a little bit more, maybe empathy is not the right word, but just understanding of how to help somebody through that. And maybe there's a person well, in between that needs to happen, you know, a conversation. Well, the that. hospital setting is really bad for that kind of conversation. Everything is white. It's clinical. There's no, there's no one. Yeah, know. there's clinical. You got machines beeping and, and you're sitting there and the doctor comes in and you say to the doctor, what do we do now? And the doctor says, Blech. they just blurted out. Hell to come up with an idea. Yeah. Or a response. And so all of a sudden what happens, particularly among the elderly, is that they become lab rats because they're in the hospital and the family can't let them go. So they keep saying to the doctor, what do we do next? And the doctor has to come up with a solution because they're in the clinical setting. And that's why you know we had to put Eric in hospice on mm-hmm. July 15, 2002. I'll never forget the day, 8.30 in the morning. I sat with him and said, game over. That was our code word. Game over. We're done. That must have been an awful decision to make too. It was terrible. And we, you know, we did a uh, a rosary together, and we talked about what he wanted. And, um, but we had to admit he was going to die in six months and that he would go to a hospice room where he would only receive palliative services. So, when I found a drug for him in Austria to feed him, because it was around his nutrition, it was a drug called Omega Men, it was an omega based, omega 3 based fatty acid that they could use as an intralipid because he was allergic to soy, and that's all we had in the States. Mm -hmm. They told me, well, Mr. Bertolini, you know if we give him this drug, he has to come out of the hospice room and go back to a regular room. What's wrong with that? (laughs) What's your decision? I said, you're kidding me, right? (laughs) Let's see. Leave him here so he dies. And if you did. And he feels comfortable, right? (laughs) Give him something that can save his life. I'm going, oh, my God. He's not watching TV. It was just stunning to me. And so when I got to Aetna, I, we were working on a thing called the Compassionate Care Program um, after Eric got um, you know, home. And, and I said, you know, telling people that they have to decide they're going to die in six months, give up hope, and that they can only receive palliative services, no more curative services, give up hope, is why people don't go into hospice. Yeah. So we did a two-year trial of saying to people, you can go into hospice whenever you want, and you can still get curative services, and you don't have to die in six months. Those are the Medicare rules, right, for for COSPIS. And we tried it, and after two years, we found an 85% reduction in bed days, a higher level of satisfaction with the whole process 
that they went through. Some people got curative services and survived. Others didn't. Mm-hmm. The, the cost of the whole thing went down by 75%. So we offered it to all of our clients for free. We said, this is a program. And this is called com- the Compassionate Care Program? Yep. It's a Compassionate Care Program. And it's still in and existence at Aetna? It's still in existence. 24% of the people died in, at home before we did the program. And now 76% of the people die at home. You know, it's, it's interesting because there are a lot of questions about whether hospice or any kind of care, end-of-life care, can be had at home and how that mm-hmm. works. And, and I get those questions. And quite frankly, I had those questions early on with my parents. But I knew what their wishes were, is not to be in a hospital setting as much as possible. So that also helped. It, was, it helped me, quite frankly, too, with that final process. And it, they weren't like your child, like your son, where I knew that right. you know, dad was 99. <laughs> yeah. Although he did want to, he, say, he said several times he wanted to live to 120. He's like, okay, let's aim for... 100. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's chew off five years at a time. Right? Yeah, he actually told the doctor once, he, he was with an aide who said, you know, he, he wanted to know how long he wanted to, to live. The doctor asked, and he said 102. And Millie, our aide, said, what happened to 120? He said, Let, let's just get to 102 first. Like, you know, so yeah. his sense of realization was was helpful to know. But even still, it's that process of, you know, when I signed those papers, it was told to sign those papers. Um, and I knew it was the right thing to do at the time. I kind of felt like I was putting my dog down. I mean, it's just, I, it sounds yeah. terrible to put like a parent in a, or a child associated with like that, well, but it was, it was a death sentence that I was signing off on. Well, I mean, you know, I, but that's part of the wishes. My mother died at home. Yeah, She wouldn't go into the hospital and she had had ovarian cancer for four years and finally caught up with her. She's 88 years old and, and, you know, and she, you know, she, she died at home. And she was upright and sitting in her chair and talking and engaging until the final two days when she said, bring the hospital bed in. Yeah. And she goes, when I go in that bed, I'm going. Well, she knew she had made that, that emotion. She made that right. mental and decision. Yeah. And two, two days later, she was But gone. the process of actually signing off on hospice is, you know, that's the hard part, no matter whether it's a parent or, you know, anything, right? I think it really it's comes terrible. down to, there's got to, I don't know if there's a better way to do it or not, but I think there can be almost a transition where we try and help people through that process. Well, the, the, that's why the dialogue about how you want to die is incredibly important. I mean, I'm, I'm a member of Dignitas out of Zurich, Switzerland, mm-hmm. where assisted suicide is an appropriate place to go. Should you want to do it, it's legal, and you have to be able to do it yourself. Um, and they have a whole process that you go through. And one of the first part of that process is very clearly laying out the conditions under which you don't want your life to continue. Correct. And I went through that work with them. So let me let me ask you, from an insurance perspective, now this takes it to a, more of a clinical level. Over the years, yeah. I had heard that if you have a life insurance policy and there's a suicide, that life insurance policy yeah. is null and void. And That's right. people who have got certain amount of their, their wealth tied up into a life plan for another spouse, that could be impacted, Correct. It could. It could. So those are those are considered. It depends on the. It depends on the policy and it depends on the circumstances. So. So you have to check that out when you're signing up for something like that. Then. You have to. You have to check out that sort of stuff. You know, I have life insurance policies, but they're clear. And a, a, the type of suicide that it's not. 
you know, it's really, it's a right to die. So it's sort of the dignity Versus like a violent suicide type of thing. Right, right, right. This is, you know, Dignitas's motto is live with dignity, die with dignity. Right. And they're, they're very specific about the circumstances under which they'll accept somebody. And then there's a program mm-hmm. and that you go through, including dry runs and everything else to make sure you're true there. Visits with you know, a psychiatrist, the whole routine. But you know, Dry we, runs? How do you do a dry run on that? I don't think like- you go through the, the whole situation. They set it up. The program works where you have an emetic, anti-emetic first. So it's like a scenario planning. Yeah, they go through the whole thing and you go through the process and, you know, you can say, no, I don't want to do this at any point. But it's a process. And so you went through that actual process. No, I haven't gone through that process because that's the next step should I decide to. So you only do that if you have to go over there and spend time with them. And it's about this is when you are sort of I call it the last legs. You're done. Right. And you're. And so we do actually treat our pets better than we treat our family. When it comes to that. Isn't that sad? It is. Yeah. And we've all seen, not to change the subjects on people versus pets, but we've also seen people who would just extend the life of, a, of an animal that is incredible pain and suffering. And you can see that. And that's that's hard. Too. It is very hard. Yeah. You know, the animal can't talk and tell us what to do. I want to sort of switch the the conversation just a little bit. You had actually gone through some your own physical issues where you were incapacitated as well and having to be cared for. Yeah. How did that, was that before or after your son's illness? I um, had my um, skiing accident one year to the day after Eric came after, home. So that, he came home on February 18th, 2003, and I had my accident on February 18th, 2004. And you were partially paralyzed? I was, well, I was, I hit a tree at a very high rate of speed on my skis. Sonny Bono, right? Um, yes. And, you know, and I was in very good physical shape and... I hit the tree and I broke five of my vertebrae, C2, C3, C5, C6, and T1. I ripped the nerve root of my left arm out of my spinal cord. I have what is called a macerated brachial proxis on the left side. All the nerve jungle that sits up in your upper chest that controls your peripheral nervous system. Damaged my lung, did two massive, massive concussions and a subdural hematoma. And I was immediately thrown into a coma and I was in a coma for a week then I woke up. They didn't think I was going to. They gave me last rites mm-hmm. and the helicopter on the way to the hospital. They had so you heard the last rites at the time then? Hmm? You were able to hear last rites? No, no. I was oh. unconscious. I was in a coma. Totally out. Okay. Yeah. And actually the team that brought me in came back after I woke up just because they couldn't believe I had lived. Amazing. And um, when I was able to be discharged to go home, the hospital and the medical system said, okay, he's done. You go figure out how to rehab. Very typical. I yeah. had an immobilized left arm, and I was in incredible neuropathic pain. And to this day, my left arm, from just below my left ear all the way down to my fingertips, burns like it's on fire. All day long, never stops. There's no drug that stops. There's no drug that interdict it, that interdicts it. And no biofeedback or anything like that? I've that done works? all of it. I've done everything you possibly can. And what I have is an avulsion scar on my spinal cord that has a huge scar over it. And my peripheral nervous system is completely knocked out in my left arm. I have nerve transfer surgery to mobilize it. So I have some use of it. But it constantly burns. And I have tried everything. I've tried high-dose ketamine therapy in an ICU. I've tried shamanism. I've tried, you know, I was on seven different narcotics at one point in time. None of it affects the pain. And so I don't, I do, I use yoga and meditation. I do have a device in me, a neurostim, 
that knocks off some of the edge of the pain, but not much. So my qualification for Dignitas is, is that I'm in, I'm in intractable pain, severe intractable pain. And when I go to see doctors, they go, wow, I don't see this kind of injury frequently in live people. It's usually on autopsy. And so what happened is after I hit the tree, I slid head first on my back, unconscious, into a river where cold water ran over my neck for two hours while they tried to get me out of there. And the cold water froze my spinal cord and prevented it from rupturing. Kept your core body temperature down so that they could they can handle it. Yeah. So the transition now from being the caregiver to your son yeah. to now being in this state of inability really to take care of yourself. Yeah. Now you're the one being cared for. Yeah. How did that impact you? Because, I mean, we can't change that. You, yeah. You're in a situation that you know what hit the fan and you didn't have it wasn't a slow decline it was an immediate response so that that emotional and that physical wall is is so strong and now you're dependent on somebody else did that impact you from an emotional oh, sure. perspective as well i mean you know my i mean i was you know in very good physical shape worked out every day ran every day mm-hmm. you know i was in peak physical condition. I was 47 years old at the time. And that helped, obviously, at a the lot, time, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and you know, I was, a, I was a strong athlete, strong skier, skied my whole life. And yeah, I mean, I had always been sort of the, I was always the non-freak out guy. I was always the guy who, you know, okay, we can figure this out. Let's just do this. Let's try this, right? And How all, did that change when it happened to you, though? Well, when it happened to me, I, the, that guy wasn't there anymore in the family. Oh, so the rest of the family didn't they that st- rock they to support started, on. Yeah, they started they started to spin because you know my son was still recovering from his cancer. You know, my wife greatly challenged by all of it. Wonderful person, but she looked at me and said, "You know, I don't know what to do." And mm-hmm. so all of a sudden, I realized I'm on my own. And the team was broken. Yep, and I'm I'm on my own. This isn't working. I remember sitting on the side of the freeway. One night, I used to get my car late at night, a high-performance sports car. And I used to drive around Avon, Connecticut as fast as I could to see if the police would pull me over. <laughs> and nobody ever did, right? And so I'm sitting on the side of the... Testing boundaries. Okay, I get it. <laughs> sitting on... Because I, I wasn't sleeping and I was constant pain. Um, and I'm sitting on I-84 with my shoulder brace for my left arm and my neck brace. And I'm looking at the bridge abutment at Main Street in... West Hartford and saying, if I drive my car, if I hit the accelerator now and drive my car into that abutment as hard as I can, I won't have to live it's anymore. Done. And a police car pulled up behind me. And the officer got out and walked up to me and said, what are you doing? I said, you're going to drive my car into that bridge abutment. You actually told him that. Yeah. And he goes, let's get out of the car. You got to get out of the car. Puts me in the back seat. His partner gets in my car. They drive me home. And they took my keys and my license and they said, you can't drive anymore and you need to go see somebody. And they, my wife talked to them the next day. She sold the car the next day. And, and it was like this wake up call that unless I take control of my own life, I'm going to be this miserable lump of flesh my whole life. And so it was, okay, how do I do that? And so, you know, I went out and sought alternative forms of medicine, cranial sacral therapy, um, yeah. So, you know, I use those things to this very day to manage my pain. You know, it's very interesting that, well, you know, thankfully for you and your family that the police happened to show up at the right time. Yeah. Somebody intervened, right? Yeah. But when 
somebody who's so used to being in charge and in control now loses control. And that can happen at any point in our lives, whether we're right. I mean, if you're in control of caring for somebody, you are the leader, right? You had been in or a corporation. It doesn't matter what it is, but you are, you are the rock that everybody relies on. And now all of a sudden, I'm kind of thinking of like what it's like to lose your breath or get the wind knocked out of you and kind of not knowing how to catch it when all of a sudden you have to take care of yourself. Not that you don't take care of yourself from a career yeah. and professional perspective, but it's different, right? Yep. A friend of mine who's a physician calls it the sniper. You're walking down the street one day and boom, it all changes. And that's what it's and like. And there's no preparing for that. You just can't prepare for it's it. It's impossible. At this particular point in time, were you over at, at, at Aetna or were you someplace else? Um, I was at Aetna. I had started at Aetna the prior year after my son got out of the hospital. Um, and I was working there and also helping my son rehab. And I was out skiing one morning with my daughter and, you know, had this accident. And it was like, it was at 1.38 p.m. because I know because of my watch that I had on my hand that hit sure. the tree. Stopped. Stopped. And, you know, 1.38 p.m. on February 18th, 2004. My whole life changed in an instant. Yeah, you know, it's... Um, changing in an instant. Unless you've been through it, I don't think there are words for it, right? There aren't words for it. And you know what? I saw it from the other side when I was a paramedic in Detroit. I remember coming on an accident scene, and there was a woman who had hit a truck very hard, and the whole dashboard and everything was on her lap. And she was talking to me, and she was worried about her husband and her children and blah, 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 blah. And I'm talking to her, and when we pulled the jaws of life out, the dashboard came off her lap, and she bled out instantly right there. Oh. And you know, I was years, you know, 30 years ago, I was in a car accident, actually right in front of our house. And I was coming back from the office of Super Bowl Sunday, and somebody came around a turn. We were on a blind curve. I was turning into our road, and boom, you know, hit head on. Two legs broken. Yeah in and out of consciousness. I didn't know it. And my husband, they, you know, somebody ran up to the house and said, you know, please call 911. My husband, who can be in a, a first was police officer in a previous life, had came down and realized it was me, right? And uh, <laughs> me and my infinite wisdom looked at him and said, hi, honey, I'm home. <laughs> but you're in shock, right? But I had no idea what was going on. Yeah, you know, they, it was, it's just like. And so you don't realize it, but it all just changes. And I don't know where that lady was headed. And she may have been going to the store for something to pick something yeah. up. And all of a sudden, the whole life changed. Um, it ended. And so, I, you know, you can't prepare yourself for it. No. And so this thing called resiliency is incredibly important in people. And resiliency is not something you're born with. Resiliency is a way of learning to deal with complex problems and to break them down into pieces that are manageable so you can deal with them. Chunks. So, you know, you don't eat the whole turkey at once. You you take it one bite at a time. Are there some suggestions or ways that beyond that breaking into small chunks, because those chunks, when you're thrown into a stressful situation, caring for somebody or yourself or whatever the situation is, the, the, the head takes over or the heart takes over the head in many cases, and we can't think clear. Mm. Are there any suggestions that you have that somebody could say, all right, I don't know what to do. I'm at a loss. I can't even think straight. How do I just start to, to organize when a crisis happens? 
like that? Well, yeah, my son, when he was diagnosed, um, I was working out one day in the gym and he came up to me and he was giving me a hard time about the company's stock price. Because I used to give him a hard time around his report card. And he goes, Dad, well, your report card's the stock price of the company. And you ain't doing so well. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> and I saw these rash under his arms. And I said oh. to him, you know, is your mom change the laundry detergent? Does it itch? He goes, no, it doesn't itch. And when I looked really closely, it was petechiae. He had bleeding through his skin, through his armpits. And that's a sign of some sort of blood dis- disorder. Immediately, Susan and I went to the, to the bookstore, got, you know, documents, got all sorts of stuff about what we could understand about it. And the first thing to do is, what don't I know that I should know, right? Got it. That's the way to start, is to say. Asking questions first, right? right? Well, yeah, yeah. Given what's going on here, what is it that I don't know that I should know? And what are the most important things to know? And you only get that by asking people, by getting books, by talking to others, mm-hmm. you know, people who've been, people like you that can yep. help them. And if you can break it down and set the priorities at that moment about breaking down the problem, you can begin to focus. And that focus starts to bring some hope. I would say that it's incredibly important to have, I hate the term network because I think that the term has been abused over the years, but to have a circle of individuals that is constantly evolving and changing at any particular point in time. Because when you're in a crisis, you need to know who to go to and be able to expand the capacity of who you know that can take you to that next level. You know, they say six degrees of separation. I said, my feeling is six degrees of separation, you're dead. You need to be two degrees of separation at best, right? I remember calling friends who had been in the, the health insurance business when we, I had questions. I said, what do I do? How do I talk to Medicare? How do I quickly get an answer? If something's not going to happen, what's it going to cost? How can I cover that versus relying on a doctor who just wants to give up? Right. That that network is is critical. I call it the kitchen cabinet. You have to have a yeah. kitchen cabinet, right? People that can, the spicier the better. <laughs> yeah. They can sit in front of you and and, and you know, sit with you in the kitchen and talk about how to how to do something, right? Because that's where a lot of families solve a lot of problems is in the kitchen. Yeah. Now I have one last question before we go is. You've been through your son, your own life situation, your own health care, and then deciding what to do. Thankfully, there was intervention. And then just recently, the passing of your mom. Yeah. Was that easier to handle because of her age for you or because you've been through other more stressful care situations as well in advance? Well, you know, when I, I, I often say to people that are stressed by situations at work that when they they say this is the worst day I've ever lived through and it's like no you haven't been there yet well let me tell you I've been there and I know what that looks like which means you shouldn't be that stressed over what's going on now so it's all about context if it's a life and death situation yes but if we're talking about well maybe about your son saying like it's your numbers it's not a life and death it could be a career perspective right that's right but it's not killing somebody that's important right. you're not going to gonna die from this right yeah and so when you've been sensitized to it you can also almost become too cool to it yeah so there were plenty of times in the work setting where i was you know in incredible pain and did not have a lot of empathy for the pain other people were going on around me in their own lives, which was not appropriate. Right. And so lacking empathy doesn't work. But being clear-minded about how to manage the process is really important. And now, my mother and I had a very complicated relationship, so I lived far away. 
She was in Michigan and Detroit, and my brothers and sisters did all the heavy lifting on her care. I got there a couple of times during her course of ovarian cancer and then was there when she passed. I had, I was more detached emotionally, given my mother and my relationship over the years, than some of my brothers and sisters. And so I think my experience of that was a lot different than my own or with my son. Almost easier sometimes when you have to play the role of a caregiver, you can be detached, but still understand the environment that's going on around you. I mean, it's a moment when somebody, you know, when it, when somebody passes on, it's a real, it's, there's an intensity about it, right? You're, they're not going to be there anymore. Yeah. They're not going to be anymore. And, you know, it's the, it's the thing that I always say to people, you know, none of us get out of this alive. So, you know, it all ends this way for us. And, mm. you know, and how can that, you know, how can that be the best possible that you can have? It's not a do-over. You know, some people no. say that you get a second chance someplace else. Like, all right, I may happen, but I haven't heard anybody who's come back and written a book on it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, well, you just never know. You just never know That's if true. it's yeah. going to be the end or not. And there is a great book, a great article by James Fry's MD, F-R-I-E-S, in 1972. And it was about squaring out the morbidity curve. Ooh. Okay. And at the time, what he had done is he had looked at organ, you know, and this is 73 now, right? 72, 73. So probably a few, even a few years before that. What could you do to sustain the optimal performance of the human condition, your body, um, all the organs? And he did an analysis and he said 85 is probably when it all starts to wear out. And wouldn't it be great, instead of having this sort of steady decay over the years, to the point where you're, you're a puddle at 85 and you die, wouldn't it be great that if you had this optimal, very little morbidity all the way to your 85th birthday, you got up in the morning, had a great breakfast, and you were dead by noon? Wouldn't that be <laughs> I don't know if it would be more frightened of like, oh, my God, that's it? Or, um, yeah. you know. I'm doing so great. Give me a few more, right? Yeah, you know, like I'm being hot till I'm 85. <laughs> So, but that was his theory: was that the healthcare system should focus on reducing the declination of the morbidity curve over time. I think that that's uh, that's a positive way to sort of think about things, right? right? Are there any last things or thoughts beyond reducing the morbidity curve that you can yeah, think of? Um, you know, I, I I would just say that nobody's immune from these experiences. The more people I talk to, and I get calls all the time from parents whose kids are sick. Right. To say, how did you do it and what can you do to help me? And we have a conversation about them, not their kid, right? Sure. Um, and what they need to do. So there are a lot of support services you can get. Like the very first thing that came to my mind is that we need a family psychologist to work with us to make sure we all understand how we're all going to feel through this. Because, you know, really sick children ends in a lot of divorce. 60% of the parents divorce. And mm-hmm. if they die, it's almost 80%. <sighs> And so this this idea of getting everybody on a game a game plan is really important, and what roles are going to be, and those may change over time because the intensity changes all the time. So I think sort of preparing for this journey, and then I would also say, you know, we took Eric all over the place, and we found a doctor in Boston who said, you know what, Eric's the youngest person to ever get this disease. He was 16, and it would have been between 17 and 34, all men had this disease, Hmm. only 34 people that they knew of, and that she said, you know what, he's going to be dead in six months. The only thing we can do is get him to 
bone marrow transplantation and we should do a bad bone marrow transplant because he has T-cell lymphoma and graft-versus-host disease kills all the T-cells. So was uh, he was, I hate to say it, he's a bit of a lab rat, but it was worth an yeah. experiment to try. Well, I said to him, do you want to do it? And he said, if you do it with me. And so that's what we did. And we went through it and um, it was horrifying. It was a terrible experience to go through somebody with graft-versus-host disease, but he's alive today. But it worked. And you know, I think we're all better people for it, having been through that journey, but it was all about preparation, right? And you know, people often say, and luck, and yeah, but luck is when preparedness meets chance. Absolutely. Right? And so you shouldn't leave it up to chance. And so being prepared. So I still have a Harrison's internal medicine text that has all the yellow sticky notes in it from when I used to sit with the doctors and talk to them, when, when my right. wife and I used to sit with, doctor, with the doctors. We don't have the laptop anymore, but we were on the NIH website talking to NIH doctors about his disease and what they thought. And so this sort of being in the game, being prepared, challenging the system, and focusing on the enemy is the system, not the disease. And not necessarily the doctor per se, but it's it's how the whole process and system works, which is, it's a business. And we have to understand that that's the way it's set up. And unfortunately... That can sometimes work against us. But what often happens is families fight with each other. And that's not who they should be fighting with. They should be fighting against right. against the, and, and the forging a, Together against a wall of support. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I literally used to sit and make the line, keep the, keep the IV lines up off the floor because he was aiming to suppress. And when they would fall on the floor, I'd say to the nurse, well, that line's on the floor. It's got to come off the floor. Yeah. But that's how Eric went in there with 16 other kids were in the program, when he in the bone marrow transplant program. He was the only one to live, and he had the worst disease. Wow. That probably goes very well to the, I'll call it the, the, the psychological support that he had from you because you weren't willing to, to give up on him either. That's a conversation you obviously have had with him, but from the outside, fighting, but being a positive, trying to be a positive force for somebody versus just fighting, right? There's, there's two different ways of looking at it. You can fight and get angry. And then you can try and put a more optimistic but realistic perspective in front of someone and say, how do we get there? And people with severe diseases should find the best clinician team anywhere in the country and not settle for the hospital in their town. I would agree with you. And there's actually been studies that show that people that travel for two or more hours to get care for significant illnesses on average have better outcomes. That means different. each hospital, as I understand, has a different area of I'll call it expertise. So you know right. your hospital may be known for diabetes, but you know the one the next city over may be known for was it I'm trying to blank the the tennis player who just was diagnosed with uh, ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she was just diagnosed with again, so she's going out there and and fighting with that, but going public with it, she that could be the next city over from from her or across right. the country. Right. But often people think they need to be in their hometown and they don't look beyond their own borders and that's to their own detriment. And it's not that the the hospitals or the clinicians are bad people. You should seek the best people, most expert in the specific illness, particularly when it's severe life and death. Being close to home is not always, it may feel comfortable, but it's not always the right solution. Yeah. 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 So thank you, Mark. This has been thank you, Nancy. a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. I hope the, continue, the conversation continues on later on as well. That would be great. Have a great day. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies. 
a step-by-step -step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021 Caremanity LLC.